0: Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. You know, I find bedtime is one of my favorite times to read. Everything is still and quiet. It's dark outside and it allows the imagination to run a little more wild. So I think books are best at bedtime. helps to shape the imagination and... Give it somewhere to go. I prefer that to uh, unguided (laughs) imagination. uh, I have a tendency to have dark thoughts, so books tend to help me with that. Books have a way of making me feel a little bit safer. I don't know what it is, but if there's time to read, well then... It's safe enough. Now, this podcast is not for children. Um, Many of the books I'll read on here... uh, I'm I'm not going to be reading uh, anything... um, Well, uh, I'm I'm not going to be reading smut. Um, I will be reading books that are more adult in nature, um, in the seriousness or complexity of the book, or perhaps in the, um, nature of the language, and, you know, when I'm talking about life or whatever, I, I'm probably gonna swear, I, you know, I, I say the fuck word, so, um, this, you know, this is an explicit podcast, so, um, Consider this consider this your warning. Um, anyway, I, I'm back for another night, and it's time for Chapter 1 of The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Last night, we read the prologue. Tonight, we're reading Chapter 1. A Place for Demons It was felling night, and the usual crowd had gathered at the Waystone Inn. Five wasn't much of a crowd, but five was as many as the Waystone ever saw these days, times being what they were. Old Cobb was filling his role as storyteller and advice dispensary. The men at the bar sipped their drinks and listened in the back room, a young innkeeper stood out of sight behind the door, smiling as he listened to the details of a, of a familiar story. <clears throat> I, I like that he's just like chilling, listening. Yeah, uh, you know, I I think that's if I had a tavern and there was only a few people there, yeah, you know, I would I would sit and, and wait. You know, I I have um briefly done food service before and it was hard to find the right place to go back and uh, approach people or or say oh hi yeah how's everything going you know you don't want to interrupt when they're having a good conversation or or anything like that you want to let them have their their time but you do want to be ready to go out as soon as they as soon as they're ready Um, so if it's if it's a not a busy night then it's kind of fun to listen in just out out of sight You know, if they're they're people you know. Otherwise, that's just a little bit creepy. Uh, But, you know, these are, you know, you're in the town. There's only, you know, so many people, and you know everybody. So, anyway. So, uh, in the back room, a young innkeeper stood out of sight. And remember, the innkeeper has um, true red hair, and he is a man uh, just waiting to die as we um, covered in in the prologue. All right, so he's listening. He's smiling as he listened. To the details of a familiar story when he awoke, Taberlin the great found himself locked in a high tower. They had taken his sword and stripped him of his tools, key, coin, and candle were all gone, but that weren't even the worst of it. You see, Cobb paused for effect, cause the lamps on the wall were burning blue. Graham Jake, and Shep nodded to themselves. The three friends had grown up together listening to Cobb's stories and ignoring his advice. Cobb peered closely at the newer, more attentive member of his small audience, the Smith's Prentice. "'Do you know what that meant, boy?' Everyone called the Smith's Prentice Boy, despite the fact that he was a hand taller than anyone there. The small towns being what they are, he would most likely remain Boy until his beard filled out or he bloodied someone's nose over the matter. The Boy gave a slow nod. The Chandrian. Now, that's, um, that's sort of a weird word, but it's it's spelled C-H-A-N-D-R-I-A-N, Chandrian. So, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. It might be Chandrian, um... Or, or possibly Candrian, but I'm going to say Chandrian. Actually, I kind of like Candrian. The hmm. No, I'm going to keep saying Chandrian, um, because that—that's just how I've always said it. I could be wrong, you know. I'm not the author, so I, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, <clears throat> the boy gave a slow nod. The Chandrian. That's right, Cobb said approvingly. The Chandrian. Everyone knows that blue fire is one of their signs. Now he was, but how'd they find him, the boy interrupted, and why didn't they kill him when they had the chance? Hush now, you'll get all the answers before the end, Jake said. Just let him tell it. No need for all that great, Jake, Graham said. The boy's just curious. Drink your drink. I drank my drink already, Jake grumbled. I need another, but the inn keeps still skinning rats in the back room. He raised his voice and knocked his empty mug hollowly on the top of the mahogany bar. Hoy, we're thirsty men in here. The innkeeper appeared with five bowls of stew and two warm round loaves of bread. He pulled more beer for Jake, Shep, and Old Cobb, moving with an air of bustling efficiency. See, he was just waiting for the right time. Um, the story was set aside while the men tended to their dinners. Old Cobb tucked away his bowl of stew with the predatory efficiency of a lifetime bachelor. The others were still blowing steam off their bowls when he finished the last of his loaf and returned to his story. Now Taberlin needed an escape, but when he looked around, he saw his cell had no door, no windows. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. It was a cell no man had ever escaped. But <coughs> Sorry, I had to fix my hair there. Where was I? Uh, let's see. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. It was a cell no man had ever escaped. But Taberlin knew the names of all things, and so all things were his to command. He said to the stone, Break, and the stone broke. The wall tore like a piece of paper, and through that hole Taberlin could see the sky and breathe the sweet spring air. He stepped to the edge, looked down, and without a second thought he stepped out into the open air. The boy's eyes went wide. He didn't. "'Or, sorry, I should say, he didn't.' "'The cob nodded seriously. "'So Taberlin fell, but he did not despair, "'for he knew the name of the wind, "'and so the wind obeyed him. "'He spoke to the wind, and it cradled and caressed him. "'It bore him to the ground as gently as a puff of thistle down, "'and set him on his feet softly as a mother's kiss. "'And when he got to the ground and felt his side where they'd stabbed him, he saw that it weren't hardly a scratch. Now, maybe it was just a piece of luck, Cobb tapped the side of his nose knowingly, or maybe it had something to do with the amulet he was wearing under his shirt. What amulet? the boy asked eagerly through a mouthful of stew. Or, <laughs> through a mouthful of stew, it should be. What amulet? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Anyway, what amulet? The boy asked eagerly. Uh, old Cobb leaned back on his stool, glad for the chance to elaborate. A few days earlier, Taberlin had met a tinker on the road, and even though Taberlin didn't have much to eat, he shared his dinner with the old man. Right, sensible thing to do, Graham said quietly to the boy. Everyone knows a tinker pays for kindness twice. No, no, Jake grumbled. Get it right. A tinker's advice pays kindness twice. The innkeeper spoke up for the first time that night. Actually, you're missing more than half, he said, standing in the doorway behind the bar. A tinker's debt is always paid, once for any simple trade, twice for freely given aid, thrice for any insult made. The man at the bar seemed almost surprised to see Coat standing there. Now, Coat is spelled K-O-T-E, so it's not like the coat you would wear, but Coate. So, yeah, they were almost surprised to see Coat standing there. They'd been coming to the Waystone every felling night for months, and Coat had never interjected anything of his own before. Not that you could expect anything else, really. He'd only been in town for a year or so. He was still a stranger. The smith's apprentice had lived there since he was eleven, and he was still referred to as that Ranish boy, as if Ranish were some foreign country and not a town less than thirty miles away. "'Just something I heard once,' Coach said to fill the silence, obviously embarrassed. Old Cobb nodded before he cleared his throat and launched back into his story. "'Now this amulet was worth a whole bucket of gold royals, but on account of Taberlin's kindness, the tinker sold it to him for nothing but an iron penny, a copper penny, and a silver penny. It was black as a winter night and cold as ice to touch.' but so long as it was round his neck, Taberlin would be safe from the harm of evil things, demons and such. I'd give good peace for such a thing these days, Shep said darkly. He had drunk most and talked least over the course of the evening. Everyone knew that something bad had happened out on his farm last Sandling night, but details were... I'm sorry, (coughs) I skipped a line. Uh, But since they were good luck, Good friends, goodness, okay, let me start that over. Everyone knew that something bad had happened out on his farm last sendling night, but since they were good friends, they knew better than to press him for the details. At least, not this early into the evening. Not as sober as they were. I wouldn't, Old Cobb said judiciously, taking a long drink. I didn't know the Chandrian were demons, the boy said. I'd heard they ain't demons, Jake said firmly. They were the first six people to refuse Telu's choice of the path, and he cursed them to wander the corners. "'Are you telling this story, Jacob Walker?' Cobb said sharply. "'Cause if you are, I'll just let you get on with it.' The two men glared at each other for a long moment. Eventually Jake looked away, muttering something that could, conceivably, have been an apology. Cobb turned back to the boy. "'That's the mystery of the Chandrain,' he explained. "'Where do they come from?' Where do they go after they've done their bloody deeds? Are they men who sold their souls? Demons? Spirits? No one knows. Cobb shot Jacob a profoundly disdainful look. However, half-wit claims he knows. Now, oh man, I just, I love the way the dialogue is written, because, like, it really flows the way people speak, you know? Like, like so many, so many books have just atrocious dialogue. Like, Sure, it sounds great and flowery when you're reading it, but have you ever tried reading that out loud and being like, wow, no one, no one talks like this. This is, this is not how language works. I love how Patrick Rothfuss just gets the dialogue, you know, like it just, it, it's well-written. Anyway, um, the story fell further into bickering at this point. About the nature of the Chandry and the signs that showed their presence to the wary and whether the amulet would protect Taberlin from bandits or mad dogs or falling off a horse. Things were getting heated when the front door banged open. Jake looked over. It's about time you got in, Carter. Tell this damn fool the difference between a demon and a dog. Everybody kn-. Jake stopped mid-sentence and rushed to the door. God's body, what happened to you? Carter stepped into the light, his face pale and smeared with blood. He clutched an old saddle blanket to his chest. It was an odd, awkward shape, as if it were wrapped around a tangle of kindling sticks. His friends jumped off their stools and hurried over at the sight of him. "'I'm fine,' he said as he made his slow way into the common room. His eyes were wild around the edges, like a skittish horse. "'I'm fine, I'm, I'm fine.' He dropped the bundled blanket onto the nearest table. Where it was knocked where it knocked hard against the wood as if it were full of stones, his clothes his clothes were crisscrossed with long straight cuts, his gray shirt hung in loose tatters, except where it was stuck to his body, stained dark sullen red let's see <clears throat> sorry I lost my place. Um... Graham tried to ease him into a chair. Mother of God, sit down, Carter. What happened to you? S- sit down. Carter shook his head stubbornly. I-, I told you, I'm fine. I'm not hurt that bad. How many were there, Graham said. One, Carter said, but it's not what you think. God damn it, I, I told you, Carter. Old Cobb burst out with the sort of frightened anger only relatives and close friends can muster. I told you for months now, you you can't go out alone, not even as far as Baden. It ain't safe, no, Baden is spelled B-A-E-D-N, it's like Bay and then D-N, I don't know. Okay, anyway, um, it it ain't safe. Jake laid a hand on the old man's arm, quieting him. Just take a sit, Graham said, still trying to steer Carter into a chair. Let's get that shirt off you and get you cleaned up. Carter shook his head. I'm fine, I I got cut up a little, but the blood is mostly Nellie's. It jumped on her, killed her about two miles outside of town, past the old stone bridge. A moment of serious silence followed the news. The Smiths' prentice laid a sympathetic hand on Carter's shoulders, on his shoulder. Sorry. Damn, that's hard. She was as gentle as a lamb too. Never tried to bite or kick when you brought her in for shoes. Best horse in town. Damn, I'm. He trailed off. Damn, I, I don't know what to say. He looked around helplessly. Cobb finally managed to free himself from Jake. I I told you, he repeated, shaking a finger in Carter's direction. There's folks out lately that would kill you for a pair of pennies, let alone a horse and cart. What are you going to do now? Pull it yourself? There was a moment of uncomfortable quiet. Jake and Cobb glared at each other while the rest seemed at a loss for words, unsure of how to comfort their friend. The innkeeper moved carefully through the silence. Arms full, he stepped nimbly around Shep and began to arrange some items on a nearby table. A bowl of hot water, shears, some clean linen, a few glass bottles, needle, and gut. Uh, No, gut is what they would use for sutures back before we had, um, the stuff we use today. Um, the, the thread and such. Um, so gut being cat gut, um, it was it's basically a a, a sterilized cat intestine I mean, it's kind of gross to think about but it works and it breaks down after a while as the wound heals so it's it's useful as a suture material anyway um, so it's just not you know as, as fine or as as maybe as reliable as, as what we use right now there's a reason we don't use cat gut Partly because we would be killing a lot of cats, but, um, anyway. <clears throat> now, I, I don't know if it was always cats. I, I don't know if they used other animals. I, I've only ever heard cat cat, so, I mean, I don't have any first-hand experience with that. Anyway, um, where was I? Glass bottles, needle, and gut. Uh, this never would have happened if he'd listened to me in the first place," Cobb muttered. Jake tried to quiet him, but Cobb brushed the younger man aside. "I'm just telling the truth. It's a damn shame about Nellie, but he—he he better listen now, or he'll end up dead. You don't get lucky twice with those sort of men." Carter's mouth made a thin line. He reached out and pulled the edge of the bloody blanket. Whatever was inside flipped over once and snagged on the cloth. Carter tugged harder and there was a clatter like a bag of flat river stones upended onto the tabletop. It was a spider as large as a wagon wheel, black as slate. The smith's apprentice jumped backward and hit a table, knocking it over and almost falling to the ground himself. Cobb's face went slack. Graham, Shep, and Jake made wordless startled sounds and moved away, raising their hands to their faces. Carter took a step back that was almost like a nervous twitch. Silence filled the room like cold sweat. The innkeeper frowned. They can't have made it this far west yet, he said softly. If not for the silence, it is unlikely anyone would have heard him. But they did. Their eyes pulled away from the thing on the table to stare mutely at the red-haired man. Jake found his voice first. You know what this is? The innkeeper's eyes were distant. Scrail, he said distractedly. I thought the mountains... Now, um, that's the... He's getting cut off. But anyway, um, Scrael is spelled S-C-R-A-E-L. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I thought the mountains... Scrail? Jake broke in. Blackened body of God, Coat, you've seen these things before? What? The red-haired innkeeper looked up sharply as... If suddenly remembering where he was, oh, oh, no, no, of course not, seeing that he was the only one with an arm's length of the dark thing, he took a measured step away. Just something I heard, they stared at him. Do you remember the trader that came through about two span ago? They all nodded. A bastard tried to charge me ten pennies for a half pound of salt, Cobb said reflexively, repeating the complaint for perhaps the hundredth time. Wish I'd bought some, Jake mumbled. Graham nodded a silent agreement. He was a filthy shim, Cobb spat, seeming to find comfort in the familiar words. I might pay two in a tight time, but ten is robbery. Not if there are more of those on the road, Shep said darkly. All eyes went back to the thing on the table. He told me he'd heard of them over near Milcombe, Coates said quickly, watching everyone's faces as they studied the thing on the table. I thought he was just trying to drive up his prices. What else did he say, Carter asked. The innkeeper looked thoughtful for a moment, then shrugged. I didn't get the whole story. He he was only in town for a couple of hours. I don't like spiders, the smith's apprentice said. He remained on the other side of the table, some fifteen feet away. Cover it up. It's not a spider, Jake said. It's got no eyes. It's got no mouth, either, Carter pointed out. How does it eat? What does it eat? Shep said darkly. The innkeeper continued to eye the thing curiously. He he leaned leaned closer, stretching out a hand. Everyone edged even farther away from the table. Careful, Carter said. Its feet are sharp like knives. More like razors, Coat said. His long fingers brushed the thing's black, featureless body. It's smooth and hard, like pottery. Don't go messing with it, the smith's apprentice said. Moving carefully, the innkeeper took one of the long, smooth, sle- smooth legs and tried to break it with both hands like a stick. Not, not pottery, he amended. He set it against the edge of the table and leaned his weight against it. It broke with a sharp crack. More like stone. He looked up at Carter. How did it get all these cracks? He pointed at the thin fractures that crazed the smooth, black surface of the body. Nellie fell on it. Carter said. It jumped out of a tree and started to climb all over her, cutting her up with its feet. It moved so fast, I didn't even know what was going on. Carter finally sank into the chair at Graham's, urging. She got tangled in her harness and fell on it, broke some of its legs. Then, then it came after me, got on me, cr- crawling all over. He crossed his arms in front of his bloody chest and shuddered. I managed to get it off me and stomped it hard as I could. Then, then it got on me again. He trailed off, his face ashen. The innkeeper nodded to himself as he continued to prod the thing. There's no blood, no organs. It's just gray inside, he poked it with a finger. Like a mushroom. Great tellu, just leave it alone, the smith's prentice begged. Sometimes spiders twitch after you kill them. Listen to yourselves, Cobb said scathingly. Spiders don't get as big as pigs. You know what this is. He looked around, making eye contact with each of them. It's a demon. They looked at the broken thing. Oh, oh, come now, Jake said, disagreeing mostly out of habit. It's not like he made an inarticulate gesture. It can't just. Everyone knew what he was thinking. Certainly, there were demons in the world, but they were like Telu's angels. They were. Like... Oh, and okay, I'm gonna. I should spell that. Telu is spelled T-E-H-L-U. Telu. Anyway, uh, but they were like Telu's angels. They were like heroes and kings. They belonged in stories. They belonged out there. Taberlin the Great called up fire and lightning to destroy demons. Telu broke them in his hands and sent them howling into the nameless void. Your childhood friend didn't stomp one to death on the road to Baden It was ridiculous. Coat ran his hand through his red hair, then broke the silence. "'There's one way to tell for sure,' he said, reaching into his pocket. "'Iron or fire?' He brought out a bulging leather purse. "'And the name of God,' Graham pointed out. "'Demons fear three things—cold iron, clean fire, and the holy name of God.' The innkeeper's mouth pressed itself into a straight line that was not quite a frown." Of course, he said as he emptied his purse onto the table, then fingered through the jumbled coins. Heavy silver talents and thin silver bits, copper jots, broken half-pennies, and iron drabs. Does anyone have a shim? Just use a drab, Jake said. That's good iron. I don't want good iron, the innkeeper said. A drab has too much carbon in it. It's almost steel. He's right, the smith's apprentice said. Except it's not carbon. You use coke to make steel. Coke and lime. Of course, that's incorrect. But uh, <laughs> he's the he's the apprentice of the blacksmith. The innkeeper nodded deferentially to the boy. You'd know best, young master. It's your business, after all. His young his long fingers finally found a shim in the pile of coins. He held it up. Here we are. What will it do? Jake's uh, Jake asked. Iron kills demons. Cobb's voice was uncertain. But this one's already dead. It might not do anything. One way to find out. The innkeeper met each one of their eyes briefly, as if measuring them. Then he turned purposely back to the table, and they edged farther away. Coat pressed the iron shim to the black side of the creature. There was a short, sharp, crackling sound like a pine log snapping in a hot fire. Everyone startled, then relaxed when the black thing remained motionless. Cobb and the others exchanged shaky smiles like boys spooked by a ghost story. Their smiles went sour as the room filled with the sweet, acrid smell of rotting flowers and burning hair. The innkeeper pressed the shim onto the table with a sharp click. "'Well,' he said, brushing his hands against his apron, "'I guess that settles that. What do we do now?' Hours later, the innkeeper stood in the doorway of the waystone and let his eyes relax to the darkness.' Footprints of lamplight from the inn's windows fell across the dirt road and the doors of the smithy across the way. It was not a large road, nor well-traveled. It didn't seem to lead anywhere, as some roads do. The innkeeper drew a breath of autumn air and looked around restlessly, as if waiting for something to happen. He called himself Coat. He had chosen the name carefully when he came to this place. He had taken a new name for most of the usual reasons, and for a few unusual ones as well, not the least of which was the fact that names were important to him. Looking up, he saw a thousand stars glittering in the deep velvet of a night with no moon. He knew them all, their stories and their names. He knew them in a familiar way, the way he knew his own hands. Looking down, coat sighed without knowing it, and went back inside, He locked the door and shuttered the wide windows of the inn, as if to distance himself from the stars and all their varied names. He swept the floor methodically, catching all the corners. He washed the tables and the bar, moving with a patient efficiency. At the end of an hour's work, the water in his bucket was still clean enough for a lady to wash her hands in. Finally, he pulled a stool behind the bar and began to polish the vast array of bottles nestled between two huge barrels. He wasn't nearly as crisp and efficient about this chore as he had been with the others, and it soon became obvious that the polishing was only an excuse to touch and hold. He even hummed a little, although he did not realize it and would have stopped himself if he had known. As he turned the bottles in his long, graceful hands, the familiar motion eased a few tired lines from his face, making him seem younger, certainly not yet thirty. Not not even near thirty. Young for an innkeeper. Young for a man with so many tired lines remaining on his face. Coat came to the top of the stairs and opened the door. His room was austere, almost monkish. There was a black stone fireplace in the center of the room, a pair of chairs and a small desk. The only other furniture was a narrow bed with a large dark chest at its foot. Nothing decorated the walls or covered the wooden floor. There were footsteps in the hall, and a young man stepped into the room, carrying a bowl of stew that steamed and smelled of pepper. He was dark and charming, with a quick smile and cunning eyes. "'You haven't been this late in a span of days,' he said as he handed over the bowl. "'There must have been good stories tonight, Reshi." Rushy was another of the innkeeper's names, a nickname almost. The sound of it tugged one corner of his mouth into a wry smile as he sank into the deep chair in front of the fire. So, what did you learn today, Bast? Today, master, I learned why great lovers have better eyesight than great scholars. And why is that, Bast? Cote asked, amusement touching the edges of his voice. Bast closed the door and returned to sit in the second chair, turning it to face his teacher and the fire. He moved with a strange delicacy and grace, as if he were close to dancing. Well, Reshi, all the rich books are found inside where the light is bad, but lovely girls tend to be out in the sunshine, and therefore much easier to study without risk of injuring one's eyes. Cote nodded but an exceptionally clever student, could take a book outside, thus bettering himself without fear of lessening his much-loved faculty of sight. I thought the same thing, Reshi, being, of course, an exceptionally clever student. Of course. But when I found a place in the sun where I could read, a beautiful girl came along and kept me from doing anything of the sort. Bast finished with a flourish. Coat sighed. (sighs) Am I correct in assuming you didn't manage to read any of Selim Tin- Sorry, (coughs) any of Selim Tincher today? That's, sorry, it's in italics, I misread that. Selim Tincher, it's uh, C-E-L-U-M-T-I-N-T-U-R-E, two words. Selim Tincher. Bast managed to look somewhat ashamed. Looking into the fire, Coat tried to assume a stern face and failed. "'Ah, Bast. I hope she was lovely as a warm wind in the shade. "'I'm a bad teacher to say it, but I'm glad. "'I don't feel up to a long bout of lessons right now.' "'There was a moment of silence.' "'Carter was attacked by a scrailing tonight. "'Bast's easy smile fell away like a cracked mask, "'leaving his face stricken and pale. "'The scrail? "'He came halfway to his feet, as if he would bolt from the room.' then gave an embarrassed frown and forced himself back down into his chair. How do you know? Who found his body? He's still alive, Bast. He brought it back. There was only one. There's no such thing as one scrayling, Bast said flatly. You know that. I know, Coates said. The fact remains. There was only one. And he killed it? It couldn't have been a scrayling. Maybe best. It was one of the scrayle. I saw it. Coat gave him a serious look. He was lucky, that's all. Even so, he was badly hurt. Forty-eight stitches. I used up nearly all my gut. Coat picked up the bowl of his bowl of stew. If anyone asks, tell them my grandfather was a caravan guard who taught me how to clean and stitch a wound. They were too shocked to ask about it tonight, but... Tomorrow, some of them might get curious. I don't want that. He blew his, he blew into his bowl, raising a cloud of steam around his face. What did you do with the body? I didn't do anything with it, Coates said pointedly. I am just an innkeeper. This sort of thing is quite beyond me. Reshi, you can't just let them muddle through this on their own. Coates sighed. They took it to the priest. He did all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Bast opened his mouth, but Cote continued before he could say anything. Yes, I made sure the pit was deep enough. Yes, I made sure there was Rowan Wood in the fire. Yes, I made sure it burned long and hot before they buried it. And yes, I made sure that no one kept a piece of it as a souvenir. He scowled, his eyebrows drawing together. I'm not an idiot, you know. Bast visibly relaxed, settling back into his chair. I know you're not, Reshi, but I wouldn't trust half these people to piss Leeward without help. He looked thoughtful for a moment. I can't imagine why there was only one. Now, a a note on that comment. Um, So it's not a a common turn of phrase anymore. Uh, Leeward. So that refers to the direction of the wind in relation to an object. So uh, say there's a house um, and there's a wind blowing from the north. We would call that, first of all, we would call that a north wind. Um, so, so the wind, you call the wind from the direction it comes from. So a north wind would be a wind coming from north to south. Um, so now if you're talking about the house, you have the wind coming from the north, hitting the, ho- the, the north side of the house, and then, you know, it just be blowing along the east and west sides, and then the south side, you would just get sort of eddying, you know, you'd be standing out of the wind. So the, we would call that the, the north side where the wind is hitting the house, um, that would be called the windward side, and then the side out of the wind, where, where the air is mostly still and just sort of eddying around, um, that is called uh, the lee side, or the leeward side, um, so to, what he's saying is he wouldn't trust most people not to piss into the wind, which, you know, obviously, that would get piss all over you, you know, because it would be, you'd piss into the wind and the, the wind would blow back onto you. So uh, you should piss leeward, you know, I mean, if you're a man and you're going to stand up to piss or whatever, um, you should piss with the wind, not against it, you know, so so that's what he's saying. I wouldn't trust half these people to piss leeward, which is like the most basic thing, just, not, just to not get pee on yourself. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, I can't imagine why there was only one. Maybe they died coming over the mountains, Coast suggested Cote suggested. All but this one. It's possible, Bast admitted reluctantly. Maybe it was that storm from a couple days back, Cote pointed out. A real wagon tipper, as we used to say back in the troop. All the wind and rain might have scattered one loose from the pack. I like your first idea better, Reshi, Bast said uncomfortably. Three or four scrail would go through this town like 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 a hot knife through butter? More like several hot knives through several dozen farmers, Uh, Bast said dryly. These people can't defend themselves. I bet there aren't six swords in this whole town. Not that swords would do much good against the skrail. There was a long moment of thoughtful silence. After a moment, Bast began to fidget. Any news? Coat shook his head. They didn't get to the news tonight. Carter disrupted things while they were still telling stories. That's something, I suppose. They'll be back tomorrow night. It'll give me something to do. Coat poked his spoon idly into the stew. I should have bought the scrawling from Carter, he mused. He could have used the money for a new horse. People would have come from all over to see it. We could have had some business for a change. Bast gave him a speechless, horrified look. Coat made a pacifying gesture with the hand that held the spoon. I'm joking, Bast, he gave a weak smile. Still, it would have been nice. No, Reshi, It most certainly would not have been nice, Bast said emphatically. People would have come from all over to see it, he repeated derisively. Indeed. The business would have been nice, Coat clarified. Busyness would be nice. He jabbed his spoon into the stew again. Anything would be nice. They sat for a long moment, Coat scowling down into the bowl of stew in his hands, his eyes far away. It must be awful for you here, Bast, he said at last. You must be numb with boredom. Bast shrugged. There are a few young wives in town, a scattering of daughters, he grinned like a child. I tend to make my own fun. That's good, Bast. There was another silence. Coat took another spoonful, chewed and swallowed. They thought it was a demon, you know. Bast shrugged. It might as well be, Rushy. It's probably the best for them to think. Certainly the best thing for them to think. I know. I encouraged them, in fact. But you know what that means. He met Bast's eyes. The blacksmith is going to be doing a brisk business in the next couple days. Bast's expression went carefully blank. Oh. Coat nodded. I won't blame you if you want to leave, Bast. You have better places to be than this. Bast's expression was shocked. I couldn't leave, Reshi. He opened and closed his mouth a few times at a loss for words. Who else would teach me? Cote grinned, and for a moment his face showed how truly young he was. Behind the weary lines and the placid innkeeper's expression, he looked no older than his dark-haired companion. Who oh, indeed? gestured toward the door with his spoon. Go to your reading, then, or bother someone's daughter. I'm sure you have better things to do than watch me eat. Begone, <laughs> sorry, actually, begone, demon, Coate said, switching to a thickly accented temic through a half a mouthful of, of stew. Tehus Antausa Eha, Bast burst into startled laughter and made an obscene gesture with one hand. Coat swallowed and changed languages. "'Aroi te dana "'Oh, come now!' Bast reproached, his smile falling away. "'That's just insulting. By earth and stone, I abjure you!' Coat dipped his fingers into the cup by his side and flicked droplets casually in Bast's direction. "'Glamour be banished!' "'With cider?' Best managed to look amused and annoyed at the same time as he daubed a bead of liquid from the front of his shirt. This better not stain. Coat took another bite of his dinner. Go soak it. If the situation becomes desperate, I recommend you avail yourself of the numerous solvent formulae extant in Selim Tincture. Chapter 13, I believe. Fine. Best stood and walked to the door, stepping with his strange casual grace. Call if you need anything. He closed the door behind himself. Cote ate slowly, mopping up the last of the stew with a piece of bread. He looked out the window as he ate, or tried to, as the lamplight turned its surface mirror-like against the dark behind it. His eyes wandered the room restlessly. The fireplace was made of the same black rock as the one downstairs. It stood in the center of the room, a minor feat of engineering, of which Cote was rather proud the bed was small little more than a cot and if you were to touch it you would find the mattress almost non-existent a skilled observer might notice there was something in his th- there was something his gaze avoided the same way you avoid meeting the eye of an old lover at a formal dinner or that of an old enemy sitting across the room in a crowded alehouse late at night coat tried to relax failed fidgeted, sighed, shifted in his seat, and, without willing it, his eyes fell on the chest at the foot of the bed. It was made of roa, a rare heavy wood, dark as coal and smooth as polished glass. Prized by perfumers and alchemists, a piece the size of your thumb was easily worth gold. To have a chest made of it went far beyond extravagance. The chest was sealed three times. It had a lock of iron, a lock of copper, and a lock that could not be seen. Tonight, the wood filled the room with the almost imperceptible aroma of citrus and quenching iron. When Coates' eyes fell on the chest, they did not dart quickly away. They did not slide slyly to the side as if he would pretend it wasn't there at all but in a moment of looking his face regained all the lines the simple pleasures of the day had slowly smoothed away. The comfort of his bottles and books was erased in a second, leaving nothing behind his eyes but emptiness and ache. For a moment fierce longing and regret wore across his face. Then they were gone, replaced by the weary face of an innkeeper, a man who called himself Coat. He sighed again without knowing it and pushed himself to his feet. It was a long time before he walked past the chest to bed. Once in bed, it was a long time before he slept. As Cote Cote had guessed, they came back to the Waystone the next night for dinner and drinks. There were a few half-hearted attempts at stories, but they died out quickly. No one was really in the mood. So it was still early in the evening when the discussion turned to matters of greater import. They chewed over the rumors that had come into town, most of them troubling. The penitent king was having a difficult time with the rebels in Resifec. This caused some concern, but only in a general way. Resifec was a long way off, and even Cobb, the most worldly of them, would be hard-pressed to find it on a map. They discussed the war in their own terms. Cobb predicted a third levy tax after the harvests were in. No one argued, though there hadn't been a three-bleeder year in living memory. Jake guessed the harvest would be good enough so the third levy wouldn't break most families, except the Bentleys, who were on hard times anyway, and the Orisons, whose sheep kept disappearing, (laughs) and Crazy Martin, who had planted all barley this year. Every farmer with half a brain had planted beans. That was one good thing about all the fighting. Soldiers ate beans, and prices would be high. After a few more drinks, deeper concerns were voiced. Deserter soldiers and other opportunists were thick on the roads, making even short trips risky. The roads were always bad, of course, in the same way that winter was always cold. You complained, took sensible precautions, and got on with the business of living your life but this was different. Over the last two months, the roads had become so bad that people had stopped complaining. The last caravan had two wagons and four guards. The merchant had been asking ten pennies for half a pound of salt, fifteen for a loaf of sugar. He didn't have any pepper, or cinnamon, or chocolate. He did have one small sack of coffee, but he wanted two silver talents for that. At first, people had laughed at his prices. Then, when he held firm, folk had spat and cursed at him. That had been two span ago, twenty-two days. There had not been another serious trader since, even though this was the season for it. So despite the third levy tax looming large in everyone's minds, people were looking in their purses and wishing they'd bought a little something, just in case the snow came early. No one spoke of the previous night, of the thing they had buried. It's right, burned and buried. Other folk were talking, of course. The town was alive with gossip. Carter's wounds ensured that the stories were taken half seriously, but not much more than half. The word demon was being spoken, but it was with smiles half hidden behind raised hands. Only the six friends had seen the thing before it was burned. One of them had been wounded and the others had been drinking. The priest had seen it too, but it was his job to see demons. Demons were good for his business. The innkeeper had seen it too, apparently, but he wasn't from around here. He couldn't know the truth that was so apparent to everyone born and raised in this little town. Stories were told here, but they happened somewhere else. This was not a place for demons. Besides, things were bad enough without borrowing trouble. Cobb and the rest knew there was no sense talking about it. Trying to convince folk would only make them a laughingstock like Crazy Martin who had been trying to dig a well inside his own house for years now. Still, each of them bought a piece of cold-wrought iron from the smith, heavy as they could swing, and none of them said what they were thinking. Instead, they complained that the roads were bad and getting worse. They talked about merchants and deserters and levies and not enough salt to last the winter. They reminisced what that three years ago no one would have even thought of locking their doors at night, let alone barring them. The conversation took a downward turn from there, and even though none of them had said what they were thinking, the evening ended on a grim note. Most evenings did these days, times being what they were. <laughs> Man, that I love I love that it, it wraps the chapter back in. It started with um Five wasn't much of a crowd, but five was as many as the waystone never saw these days, times being what they were. And then, most evening, let's see, uh, the evening ended on a grim note. Most evenings did these days, times being what they were. Which, I love that. The, the, uh, bringing it around full circle back to times being what they are. It's excellent, um, excellent little... Detail that adds and, and wraps up the chapter. When I was in high school, I um, I took a creative writing class, and um, I was the only one in class. We, we were uh, we were supposed to work together to uh, to write a, a short book. Um, I was the only one who wanted to write science fiction. I was really into science fiction in, in high school. Um, still like it, but uh, I don't read it nearly as much as I anymore. Um, anyway, uh, I I decided to write a little bit of science fiction. I never finished more than like two chapters, but um, I, I did a prologue and a, and a first chapter. And um, looking back, it was it was absolutely terrible. The prologue was, had merit. It was it was a good prologue, but uh, that was about all. Um, anyway, the, uh, the class was really good. Uh, the first semester I had taken a course that was all, all I knew about it was the course title was literature to film. And I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Lit, Lit to film was the was the title. So it was abbreviated, but it was literature to film. And I was like, you know, I'm interested a little bit in how to make movies and I'd be interested in how people adapt uh, books into movies. That'd be a really cool thing to learn. Come to find out, that wasn't so much a uh, course description as it was a lesson outline um, for literally every day of the class. The teacher would have us, um, she would give us like a two-sentence prompt or something uh, that was some simple question, we just had to write like a one or two sentence response to it, which never amounted to anything really um, and then like we did two book reports in the entire semester, and like again the, this was a high school course I was a senior, you know this was the, it was a pathetic waste of time because all we did in class was we had to read a book not not the same book we were not reading books as a class, no. Um, we were, we would read any, we would read out of any book that had been made into a movie or TV show. Um, and then, uh, for the second half of class, um, she would turn the lights off and we would watch a movie on the projector, um, that had been adapted from a book. Usually sometimes it like one of them I think was Shrek and I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that Shrek was not adapted from a book. Uh maybe like a smorgasbord of different um fantasy fairy tale tropes, but uh, not an actual book as far as I'm aware. So Yeah, um It was such a waste of time. I wish I had not taken that course. I, I really was disappointed because I was looking forward in that class. I was looking forward to learning something. And I, I didn't learn a, a single thing in that class. Anyway, um, luckily I, I got to take a creative writing course for the second half of my senior year. And... Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, uh, never really got anywhere with the book. Um, but that said, I'm always interested in analyzing people's writing styles. Um, and just like the, the way that they tell their stories. Um, cause I'm also a uh, DM for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'm a dungeon master. So, um, with, with that said, it's like, yeah, I I, I want to know how to tell better stories. I'm, I'm always looking for ways to tell better stories as I uh, as I go on through through life. Want to tell a better story for my players, and when I'm a player, I want to be better at contributing to a story. So, because um, uh, I mean, some some people play. Dungeons and Dragons, like, a combat simulator, and, like, play a video game for that, or something, you know, or, or play Warhammer, or whatever, like, if you, if you are in it for the combat simulation, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is a storytelling game. It's a collaborative storytelling model, um, that is game-based storytelling. So, it's about the story. It's about the characters. If you're not there for the characters, if you're not there for the story and the the fun antics you can get up to or or even for a more serious story, like, what are you there for? Sorry, that's not really the topic in this. Um, but anyway, looking at the, the storytelling, I love that the opening and the closing of the chapter um, have the same line. And um, really narration like that is something that I need to work on as a DM um, I'm not very good at at narrating things um, in an appropriate level of detail I usually do too much or too little and then um, I struggle with the artfulness that is so present in this book and I mean obviously with a book you can you can go back and edit things to increase the the um, floweriness of the language, or or to go back and say, oh, well, you know what, this would actually flow better this way um, rather than the way I wrote it originally. And you, you don't really get the chance to go back um, when you're telling stories in real life. Um, but some people still manage to, to tell stories this, this well. Um, and uh, that's... That's something that I would like to work on. So, hopefully, as I read this book to all of you, um, I get a little bit of the narrative skill (laughs) that is present in this book. Um, And you get to enjoy the great narrative skills of the author of this book. So, um, again... Uh, That was chapter one, um, which was titled A Place for Demons, um, chapter one of the book The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Well, that's all for tonight, so uh, I'm, I'm Tyler, your host for Books at Bedtime. I hope you have a wonderful night and uh, sleep well. Good night.